Because one of the things that happened to evangelism is it plurified. And some people thought a good way to evangelize was by being politically active, fundamentalists. There are others that thought the best way to evangelize is to marry Christianity with science. But evangelicals are continuing to say, well, um, I'm actually going to continue to preach the gospel. And so I'm still going to take my authority from God's word. Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is fantastic to have you along with us and it is fantastic to have only one person joining me today. Tim can't make it, Stu, but you are with me, Stu. Welcome yes, back. he's got some kids down with COVID, so yes. he's isolating. He has, and it's lovely to have you back on the podcast mm, as well. Thank you. It's good to be back. Um, now after, I'm, after my little stint. Yes, yeah. you had a little stint of COVID yes, yourself. That's and right. You're recovering okay? Yep, yep. Excellent. We've, well, pretty much everyone's getting it these days, aren't they? <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, something that we have to deal with. Yes, exactly. Now, we're uh, continuing our series on uh, whatever happened to evangelism. We have taken a break. We talked about evangelism in youth ministry and um, children's ministry with Andy and Jen, but now we're back on the uh, history trail. As yes, we, as we on want the timeline, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we kind of, prior to those two episodes, we uh, ended up talking about, uh, came up to the 1940s, basically, and looking at evangelism in America. Um, and that's where we're going to leave off again. So that's going to include people like Billy Graham and John Stott. And as always, we like to start a uh, episode with a story or a cultural artifact. Mm. And you have a very interesting one about <laughs> about Billy Graham, where you actually attended one of his crusades. Yes, I am that old. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, yeah, the thing that I'm loving about what what we're doing, Joel, is that we're trying to understand why we're not evangelizing at the moment by going back and looking at evangelism and the history of evangelism and seeing what the legacy of that history is on us and sometimes certain moments in evangelical history have um, both passed on positive and negative uh, opinions to people about evangelism what it is and so one of the the real uh, moments uh, in recent times of a really big spike in evangelism was around the Billy Graham Crusades and that was after the Second World War. Billy Graham came to prominence, which we'll talk about some more later, but uh, he came out to Australia a few times and did some big, what he called crusades, really big rallies, and they were so huge that, I mean, we could look it up in the podcast, but apparently the number of people that went to the 59 Billy Graham Crusade in Melbourne it was still it was the biggest crowd the Melbourne cricket ground I think it was yep, ever right. had yep and to this day it remains the largest crowd 130,000 people. so they had 130,000 people go to the Melbourne cricket ground mm. to see Billy Graham speak so this was like a pop cultural phenomena and so in the 1950s he was having such a huge impact around the world which again I'll, we'll talk about in a minute and you can't talk about what happened to evangelism without talking about Billy Graham. You have to kind of understand how we sit in the shadow of those events. So, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so I thought that the fun part for today might be just sharing my experience of the 79 crusade. So he came out in 1959, 20 or whatever it was later, 20 years later, yep. he came out again in, uh, uh, I think he came out in 1968 as well, but I'm not too familiar with that. But the definitely 1959 and then in 1979, uh, I was 11. So as an 11-year-old, my mum and dad took me to uh, the race course in Sydney. I think it was Randwick Race Course. Yep. I think they had it. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. And my memory was sitting up in a stand and looking down and seeing this huge crowd. Now, I don't know how big it was at Randwick, but as an 11-year-old, I was 
guys, it was yeah, definitely the biggest crowd I'd ever sat in because up to then, the biggest crowd I'd ever gone to was Sharks down at Cronulla or the <laughs> Soccer Sharks, Sutherland United uh, soccer team. So I hadn't seen huge crowds up until then. And yeah, I was. it was just, it was electric. The atmosphere was the buzz, the, you know, people were very excited about what he was going to say. And I'd taken a little friend, uh, a young friend of mine along and my young friend and I were sitting in the crowd and as Billy Graham was speaking, I just felt so excited. And I'd already made a commitment to Jesus when I was a little kid in earlier in my life. But that day was so moving that I turned to my mum and dad and um, I said to dad, would it be all right if I went down? When they asked for uh, the crowd, if you wanted to accept Jesus into your heart, do you want to come down? Um, and we can talk about that phrase a little later too. It's an interesting phrase. But this idea of accepting Jesus as personal Lord and Saviour um, would you like to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Saviour? And I said to, to Dad, like, I've already become a Christian, but do you reckon it'd be all right if I went down? And Dad said, that'd be wonderful. And as I was sitting there, my friend, who wasn't a Christian, he was a bit, just a year or two older than me, 12 or 13, he said, I'll come down with you. And the two of us went down together and walking down with a sea of people down to the front of the stage. And Billy Graham, I remember, was still up the front on the stage. But there were all these counsellors who were saying to us, oh, tell us who you are. And they had little what we'll call tracks, which we'll get onto today, which is like a simple explanation of the gospel. And they uh, connected us up with a local church. And I think what was great, well, I was already connected to a local church, but what was really great about that is all the local churches in Sydney had got together to support this crusade and had pre-prepared for the crusade by prayer we talked in an earlier episode about the importance of prayer for mm. revival and both in the 59 and also in the 79 um, sydney churches were mobilized and worked together and i think that was a really beautiful moment where lots of people became christians at that event but then they were actually uh, discipled in local churches uh, so that's a really exciting experience of mine yeah what is it, what's it like when you go down to the you know, some people call it an altar call or whatever. What's 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 yeah. that like? What's that experience? Because I'll be perfectly honest, I've never done it. Yeah, well, again, it's one of those things that sometimes today's generation of Christians might even sometimes have a laugh at. It's like it, it can seem a bit manipulative, emotionally manipulative. Oh, you know, let's give a really resounding talk about Jesus and then ask people to come forward to accept Jesus as Lord. But I did that so authentically and I was moved, but I felt like Billy Graham's uh, sermon was preaching to my heart and to my head mm. and so as a young person it made sense and it was reasonable to accept that Jesus was Lord and I also had a heartfelt response as well so to be able to act on that heartfelt response and respond I really appreciated that opportunity mm. and so for me to go down the front with everyone I also felt like I was part of something God was doing and I went down the front not feeling manipulated, there was no haranguing. I have been in contexts where people have given an evangelistic talk and then tried to really talk people into coming. Um, the opposite of the Billy Graham crusade is once I went to a youth rally at Caringbar Anglican Church, or Baptist Church, I can't remember, I know it was in Caringbar, it was a long time ago, but when I was a teenager, some visiting evangelist had come and I got there late and I came in and I sat down right in front of where the guy was looking in the, in the aisle and he was preaching the gospel and felt like he was just pointing at me and then when he said it's time to come down the front it wasn't like the moment I had a Billy Graham where I felt like I wanted to respond it was my decision he was like you know you need to come down the front and he was actually literally pointing at me saying you need to come down the front and I'm like oh, I'm cool man like that's <laughs> yeah. okay so I have experienced how that can be done 
well and not well. But with Billy, I think to see his authenticity and his genuine desire for people to meet Jesus, I just found that incredibly authentic. Mm. So we might, again, um, you know, have a bit of a laugh at that. Um, you know, I know in the 90s there was even simpson episodes parodying that kind of moment for people so we kind of have a bit of a laugh at that we're a bit too sophisticated for that sometimes but there's something in that moment giving people an opportunity to respond to the gospel which is actually a beautiful gift and i think that's what i want to explore a bit today yeah what is that moment well it's and you, you talk about um the way that uh, billy graham presented the gospel is a really um a way that we can um, learn a lot from, yeah, from doing I think we that. Can, actually, can I yeah. ask you one more question about the crusade, though? When you went, is what was the impact that it had on you after the, the going to see him? Well, as I said, I, I already had made a commitment when I was younger. I was already going to church. I was already thoroughly convinced Jesus was Lord. But for me, it was um, a moment that I'll never forget because. I felt like what I had been doing as a child, I was now doing, I was only 11, but I felt like this was somehow a deeper commitment, that somehow I, 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 I was a Christian and I didn't need to go forward. But for me, it was like not even a deeper commitment. I think it was more a, a decision that as I knew, because I had this really strong sense that I was coming into my teenage years. And I did know, even as a young person, that a lot of teenagers turn their back on Jesus. And so I found it a really helpful moment for me to go, actually, as a teenager, I'm going to continue on in this faith like I have been as a child. This is something I want to do. So it did have a big impact on me because it was nice to have that moment to go, yeah, I've decided to do this again. I'm still going to continue to live like this. And it's also um, your story that uh, speaks to what um, uh, both... Tim, Jen, and Andy were speaking about in the last few episodes is that uh, youth ministry and children's ministry is very, very important because they mm. uh, people that age do have their own faith and do have a chance to have their own faith and respond to Jesus. It's just their faith at that particular time, yeah. and I think that's yeah. why it's no. It's just it's cool to hear that back back up what those guys were oh, saying. Oh yeah, hundred so percent. It's fantastic. So using Billy Graham as an example, we've we've, we've talked about how mm. he's um it was it was almost like. Uh, well, last episode when we were talking about the historical um, aspects of evangelism, we talked about how in America it kind of there was a split between mm. the fundamentalists and modernists. And I remember um, after that podcast we were just having a discussion around it and with Tim and Tim and I had watched a video that week where they said that fundamentalists and modernists had just completely split and then the evangelism or the evang evangelicals came out of that. But then you made an argument um, to say that, no, I think that there has been a through line through history of evangelicals. I was just wondering, as a basis to kick off this episode, um, do you mind articulating that argument mm. and telling mm. us what, what you meant by that? Yeah, so and I think, I think if, you, if you're new to the podcast today and you haven't listened to any of our earlier podcasts in this season, you might want to uh, trip back and have a listen to some of the earlier podcasts because... The argument that I'm making, I think, is that um, evangelicals are, are Christians who believe in the good news. So the word evangelical comes from the word euangelion, which mm. is the Greek word meaning uh, uh, the good, good news. news. And so in my mind, the definition of an evangelical is someone who is is um, declaring the good news. So an evangelical is... So, well, an evangelist is someone who's declaring the good news. Actually, let's get those two terms really clear. Mm. So an evangelist is someone who declares the good news. An evangelical puts their authority uh, in, you know, in God, that God's word is their authority. So yeah, God's okay. good news is their authority. So an evangelical comes from that idea of um, 
the good news being the authority. And I think as you look at Christian history, you can see that going all the way back to Jesus, when Jesus first started his ministry, he said that he'd come to bring the kingdom. And he said uh, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I have come to bring the kingdom of God, repent and believe the good news. So I think that's a real flag in the sand for us as those of us who call ourselves evangelicals to go, yeah, we're actually in line with um, Jesus' proclamation that his ministry is all about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and declaring the good news so that people might hear the good news and respond. So that famous verse that a lot of evangelicals really love is John 3.16, which is um, all about a personal commitment to that good news that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. So I think an evangelical Christian is a term that's come along later in church history, but if you look back, you can see Christians who have been evangelical all the way through Christian history. So I think you can see Augustine who puts his um, who sees the Bible as authoritative and you know even in a, a time of the Catholic Church uh, saying that the Pope and the church have equal authority to the Bible. you see Luther come along in the Reformation and say no actually the Word of God is is actually our truth and that is an evangelical position. But even between Augustine who was uh, a lot earlier and, and Luther in 1500s, you, you see examples of that all the way through. Um, closer to Luther's time, you see the Lollards who were saying it's really important that we get the Bible into people's language so that they can read it for themselves, which was considered by the church to be very threatening because they didn't want to undermine their power by having peasants be able to read the Bible. They wanted the peasants to just listen to the priests. But that evangelical impulse of actually the good news is our authority, we're going to put that in the hands of the everyday people, that's an evangelical impulse. But the word evangelical only starts to come along uh, during the Great Awakening and the the revivals of, um, you know, Whitfield and... Wesley and, and these kind of guys, that's when I think evangelicalism really comes to the fore. And what was really interesting at that time, as we've already talked about on earlier podcasts, is there was uh, a focus in that period of time on people making a personal commitment mm. to Christ. So even uh, so, so during most of Christian history, the idea was, well, I belong to this country and this country is a Catholic country, so I'm Catholic, or I belong to this country and it's a Protestant country, so I'm Protestant. Uh, the prince often determined the religion of the country and that's why there were so many wars in uh, after the Reformation because countries went to war over the fact whether they're going to be Protestant or Catholic in part. I mean, it was more complicated than that. Yeah. But what you get in the... Particularly when there's a great movement um, of migration to America is a lot of people escape a lot of the persecution of those times from that more collectivist attitude of saying we're all Catholic or we're all Protestant and the state churches define what the country should be, anybody else who had a divergent view would be persecuted. And so John Bunyan, for example, we talked about earlier, who had an evangelical impulse to preach outside of the four walls of a church, he was imprisoned for 11 years because he was not—he was refusing to commit to only preaching in the church. But then the Americas, I think, bust all that open and you get the growth of a new volunteerism, we called it. And the volunteerism is a focus on the fact that no longer is there a state church in America and there's the rise of the denominations in Europe and America where 
now the individual churches were responsible to grow their churches. Uh, in England, after the Reformation, the Anglican Church was drawn up the whole of the country, the, the whole of England, for example, into parishes, and each parish was given a, a parish church, and all the people in that living area were considered to be Anglican members of that uh, church of England. Whereas in America, uh, you have all these denominations with preachers going out and calling on people to make a personal commitment to Christ. Not only the great evangelists like Wesley and Whitfield, but also um, lots and lots of boundary rider pastors who just get on a horse and go into some little American, you know, frontier town and preach the gospel and start a church. And so you get the spread of Methodism and other denominations. But this volunteerism is really focused on people making an individual commitment to Christ. And, it's, and I think that's an evangelical uh, response to what Jesus says back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the good news. You need to actually consider yourself and understand that we're all sinners and that we need to turn away from our sin and accept that Christ died on the cross for our sin. And as a result, we are forgiven for our sin if we repent of our sin. So evangelists are the ones who encourage people to make a commitment to Christ. And the evangelicals are the the Christians who believe that the word of God is is their primary authority. Now, that's not to say that evangelicals debate that. There is, you know, the rise, which we'll talk a little bit about today, the Azura movement uh, in, in um, the charismatic tradition really gets going in the 1900s. And then the se- 1970s, there's a big explosion of the charismatic church, which also talks a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus and the role of the Holy Spirit in that. And so there's discussion amongst Protestant evangelicals about that. But generally, this evangelicalism uh, continues on from the Great Awakenings and the revivals into the um, the 1800s. And in the 1700s and the 1800s, there is also a rise of liberalism, which you've been calling modernism, where uh, Protestantism actually splits uh, into lots of denominations, but then I think there are two main streams of Protestantism coming out of uh, the Reformation. One is um, that there are those who continue to hold to the Word of God as the truth, but then there are Christians who are listening to the the new science that's rising mm-hmm. with Darwinism and 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 social Marxism and and some of these impulses that are saying, how do we marry? Uh, our faith with science and we talked at an earlier episode that some evangelicals started to uh, start a new line or a new um, tradition within um, protestantism called liberalism where where um, there was a questioning of the authenticity of the biblical accounts there was a journey called the the search for the historical jesus for example so you've got the evangelicals who are continuing to preach the good news and now you have Protestants questioning the good news. What is the good news? Mm-hmm. And what's the authority? So that goes right up until uh, the 1900s. But by the time of the 1900s, obviously there are many evangelicals who are concerned by this liberalism. And there is a group that breaks off from evangelicalism called the fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And there is an American writer called Marsden who argues that a fundamentalist is a politically active evangelical. Right. So, so now you have three strains of Protestantism. And a fourth is born in the early 1900s, I think you could say, of charismatic um, evangelicals. And people debate you know, whether charismatics are or aren't evangelicals. But when it comes back to this idea of modernism or liberalism versus fundamentalism, I think both liberalism and fundamentalism broke away from evangelicalism. 
and fundamentalism became a very prominent um, group within America particularly up until, as we've said in earlier podcasts, 1928 when the the show trial, which was the, the Scopes Monkey mm-hmm. trial, discredited the fundamentalists' views of Darwinism. So it looked kind of to the public mind that science had had succeeded over faith. And so this fundamentalism starts to wane as we get to the the second half of the 20th century. Uh, liberalism continues to be strong. But what I'm arguing today is evangelicalism hasn't gone away through that whole time. There are still the crusaders, there are still groups, particularly within youth ministry, that are asking young people to have an individual commitment to Jesus who aren't politically active. They're not trying to influence the political uh, situation in their country. What they're trying to do is actually call individuals to faith, just as Whitfield had, just as Mm -hmm. um, Luther had, just as Jesus calls us to in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. So so my argument um, going forward today is what we're looking at is what happens in the second half of the 20th century, what happens to fundamentalism, what happens to liberalism or modernism, and what happens to evangelicalism. And what we're going to focus on today is evangelicalism starts to rise again in the second half of the 20th century. So, And like I said, that doesn't mean there wasn't any evangelicals in the first half of the 20th century because another group called the Navigators were incredibly successful in getting the Bible into the hands of young people and teaching them to memorise scripture. That was a really big movement, for example. Crusaders in Australia was a really huge youth movement, again, in that evangelical line. So as some Protestants make a decision that the only way we're going to fight liberalism and science is politically in the public realm... Well, there's a lot of evangelicals who are going, oh, we're just going to keep just teaching the good news. And I think that's the trajectory that I feel like I resonate with, that I think our church at Sorrel Bible is a part of that history and that tradition. So it's nice to map that through so that we can answer this question we have in this series, which is whatever happened to evangelism? Because one of the things that happened to evangelism is it plurified. And some people thought a good way to evangelize was by being politically active, fundamentalists. There are others that thought the best way to evangelize is to marry Christianity with science. But evangelicals are continuing to say, well, um, I'm actually going to continue to preach the gospel. And so I'm still going to take my authority from God's word. And so when we come back to Billy Graham that we talked about, he's an interesting story when, when we get to him about how he had a real decision moment. Am I going to be a liberal or an evangelical? And he decides to be evangelical and move forward from that point of view. So your your knowledge and background of this because you was it I always get mixed up between a master's and a PhD but you were doing your PhD PhD yeah PhD on mm. on this actual topic is yeah that right? that's right yeah. yeah well I was looking at evangelical youth ministry mm. and I was looking at a lot of this stuff as a part of my research in the early nineties uh, and at the same time as starting my research at the University of New South Wales I was doing a PhD in political science and I was looking at the history of uh, evangelicalism. And that's where I came across Marsden because mm. Marsden, which we could put in the show notes if people want to look at him, he's probably the best author for you to get your head around this distinguishing between evangelicals and fundamentalists that uh, evangelicals, um, I think, were continuing to preach the gospel as of, you know, evangelists were coming out of that tradition and then that led to some significant movements in the second half of the 20th century. Billy Graham 
actually was followed up by the Jesus movement. And so those two things together actually had a really big impact on the West. Mm. And also perhaps how you develop your ideas around the shock absorber and, and those kinds yeah, of things it as has. well. Yeah, it has. Well, I, I, I actually wrote my first paper on the shock absorber in 2005, I think it was, for a conference for YouthWorks in Sydney. Mm. But um, yeah, the, the shock absorber theory, what, what I ended up doing is I, I started my PhD in the early 90s and then the youth ministry we started at the same time, Soul Revival, got so big that one of my supervisors at uni said, Stu, I think you're going to kill yourself doing <laughs> research and doing the youth ministry. Yeah. And uh, my supervisor said, um, you know, it's time that you yeah, think about being, whether you, whether you write about being Mother Teresa or be Mother Teresa, you can't do both. <laughs> That's how, <laughs> how my supervisor put it. So I, I thought, oh, okay, I'll be Mother Teresa. So <laughs> I put my PhD on hold. But I kept researching. So mm. after I finished my formal PhD studies, I just kept thinking and writing. And then that came to, a, uh, I suppose, a conclusion with the paper in 2005, which we could put in the show notes too, the first thoughts about the shock absorber. Yeah, absolutely. But then what we've done, what I've been able to do recently is my supervisor now, I've started restarted a new PhD in political science and theology. So this time I'm doing a practical theology PhD and mm. we're looking at that. So yeah, that's, that's where all this research comes yeah, from. Yeah, that's right. That's why I appreciate your, your uh, knowledge and, and depth of knowledge in that. I was just going to ask a quick question about the, we talked about the Scopes Monkey Trial accelerating the, mm. the almost the split within Protestant, Protestantism. I can't, I can't say that right. Yeah. But the fundamentalists, if they lo- when they lost that Scopes Monkey Trial, uh, is that when they became really politically active or they already politically active but they so, doubled down? Yeah, so the way I see it, Joel, is the fundamentalists um, are a group of evangelicals. Yeah. So if you can think of evangelicalism as being this river, there's a tributary goes off the river called fundamentalism. Yep. And that kind of breaks away in the early 1900s. And what they decided to do was they needed to write down what they thought were the fundamentals of the faith. Now... Um, some of those fundamentals were very evangelical. So one of the fundamentals that they said is fundamental to the faith is that the Bible is the word of God and it's it's accurate. Uh, so what they were trying to say, I think, is in response to the liberals who were questioning the authority of the Bible, they started a movement to counter that. Mm. And so the evangelicals, though, I think are people who just don't worry about that engagement between liberals and and arguing with liberal Christians and science, they just keep preaching the gospel. So the navigators don't get involved in this fundamentalist movement. They just keep trying to get resources into the hands of young Christians to help them to memorise the Bible because they think that's the way forward for evangelism, uh, helping young people to meet Jesus. But the fundamentalists are doing that. They're helping people to meet Jesus, but they're also saying, let's get active and counter these liberals. And they do that. Uh, increasingly during the first half of the 20th century, they get more more political. Mm. So some of the fundamentalists go, let's actually take Darwinism to court so that we can challenge it in court. And that's where you get Marsden's really helpful definition that a fundamentalist is a politically active evangelical. So they are evangelicals, the fundamentalists, but they've become politically active. Now, when you see it that way, there's not a split between fundamentalists and evangelicals at the Scopes Monkey Trial it's just that the fundamentalists kind of publicly fail in their experiment to try and be politically active to convince America that science is not our first authority. If you like the evangelicals, I think, don't really have um, a big part in that conversation. They just keep going with evangelism. The liberals, on the other hand, uh, yeah, they would have been 
criticising creationism. They would have been cri- uh, criticising seven-day um, creation ideas. Um, as I've already said, they were even in a search for the historical Jesus. They were increasingly arguing the liberals that, um, you know, that the stories of Jesus and and the miracles, for example, were a creation of the early church rather than things that actually historically happened. So they would say Jesus was a historical figure, but you know, a lot of the words attributed to him and the miracles attributed to him, well, they thought were made up by the early church. The fundamentalist argued with that and said, oh, no, it's very reasonable to believe that the Bible is true in, in, and, and, and is our authority. The evangelicals, um, I think, are kind of like the main river through history of, um, of people who are simply saying, yeah, the Bible is our authority and let's call on people to accept that for themselves yeah so so what happens i think joel after the scopes monkey trial is the fundamentalists have lost a lot of credibility but the evangelicals haven't been part of that debate Mm. and as a result they actually come to prominence in the second half of the 20th century so billy graham was not politically active in his early days he was part of young life He was part of a youth movement that was emerging just before the Second World War and really helped a lot of young people in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And Youth for Christ, Young Life, uh, there's another guy called Jim Rayburn who came from that, who was part of the um, early days of youth ministry. But Billy Graham was starting these big rallies in tents and he'd go around, he'd travel around, he'd just call on people to make a personal commitment to Jesus, like I experienced in 1979. It was a really simple format. Go to a city advertise that he's going to speak all these people come and listen to him speak Mm. he speaks calls people to what you call an altar call come down the front become a christian get yourself into a local church grow as a christian that's how billy graham was going to change the world not by publicly fighting darwinism in court so i suppose his brand of christianity went through uh into the 20th century um there's a really interesting story about Billy Graham. I mean, we can get onto his history in a minute. Yeah, but, well, but that's when, right. Let's, yeah, let's, let's do that. I yeah, mean, the reason I, mean, I asked was because I, I picked up a book and I was having a look at it. It's called yeah, The yeah. Evangelicals. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think it's a secularist book, but it said that uh, their claim was that Billy Graham came out as a fundamentalist. But yeah. I think your argument is that that, that yeah. is not actually the case. Well, this is the key thing for this today's podcast, actually. A lot of people call all evangelicals fundamentalists. Yes. And what we're trying to help our viewers and our listeners to understand is just because secular commentary says we're fundamentalist it doesn't mean that we are because actually fundamentalism is according to marsden who's a very well respected academic fundamentalists are politically active evangelicals so they're still evangelicals but they're politically active evangelicals so at the moment a lot of our news reports would call trump supporters evangelicals and fundamentalists in the same breath and and I think the whole, which we'll get to, I suppose, the whole election of Trump has really created this sense that evangelicals have got behind mm. Donald Trump. But my argument is that's the politically active evangelicals who got behind Donald Trump. And I think there's a re-emergement of fundamentalism uh, in our I time. See. So understanding this difference between evangelicalism and fundamentalism will help people uh, who want to, who still want to call themselves evangelicals. If you know, I call myself an evangelical and someone says, oh, do you vote for Trump? that gives me an opportunity to go, well, actually, no, I'm actually an evangelical. I'm not politically active evangelical. So, um, yeah, so that secular book that calls Billy Graham a fundamentalist has missed 
the point of the difference that Marsden's mm. trying to make. Yeah, I think that, that's right. And it also says that his uh, Billy Graham's timing was good. It was serendipitous. And I think we would also argue that well, it's probably God's timing. In, in yeah, that. exactly. But yeah. I, I'm sure that the, the him um, coming to prominence just after the Second mm. World War would have a big impact. I mean, the, the World War II was such a... A devastating um, mm, was. event across the world. Uh, so, why don't we dive into Billy Graham? Uh, anything in particular that you've uh, pulled out from Billy Graham research that you like you like to talk about? Yeah. So, so Billy, um, he was a Southern Baptist mm. in America. He's born in Charlotte, I think. Yeah, born in Charlotte. Uh, he he was. Um, there's an interesting backstory actually. The the man who converted Billy Graham was actually. Uh, Billy was his only convert in his whole life. Oh, really? And I think that's a really cool story because it encourages us that if you only influence one person for Christ, you don't know who they're going to influence yeah, because Billy cool. Graham was probably talked to more people in the world than any other Christian evangelist. He's mm. like had the huge this huge ministry. But where did it come from? Well, he, um, he was a Southern Baptist. Um, jump in and help um, unpack this story with me, uh, Joel. But he, uh, he actually he went to seminary, uh, did a Bachelor of Theology degree um, at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And it was there that he come came to accept that the Bible was the infallible word of God. And so Billy's decision there was really important because at colleges all over the world, people were engaging in this big dialectic argument between evangelical view of the Bible and the liberal view of the Bible. Mm. And so everybody who goes to college is like, oh, you know, the liberals right or or are the evangelicals right about the authority of the word of God or the, or the fundamentalists? And so what Billy, apparently Billy had a moment where he just decided, look, there's all these arguments swimming around in my head. Is the Bible real? Is it not? I'm just going to decide it is. Like I feel convicted that it is. And he makes this personal decision sitting on a rock apparently, um, just thinking about this. He, he prayed and he said, God, I'm just going to trust your word. And I think that's a really good place to start with Billy because he had this real confidence in the word of God that meant that he could speak eloquently about encouraging other people to accept the word of God. So he wasn't double-minded, wondering if it was true and doubting. He, he decided that it was the word of God. I think that's a really important thing to also speaks to, know. to the other revivalists of the, trusting the word of God and then praying. And mm. then that's where the revivals began, which is just again, it's the it's the same theme over and over again, and probably plays into the that through line of evan- the evangelism and evangelicals that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So then I, I did see that he toured speaking for Youth for Christ, but you just mentioned. Oh that yeah, earlier. I got that wrong. Yeah, oh. Young Life was another group oh, at the same sorry. time. He was in Youth for Christ. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm what sorry. Was, what was young, life? On. young Life was another youth ministry movement. Okay, and that's where Jim Rayburn comes in. We'll get back to him in okay. a little bit, but yeah, Young Life and Youth for Christ are two really prominent early youth ministries that happened in the second half of the 20th century okay so then after that he's obviously starts touring speaking for youth for christ but then he's going to start his crusades in 1947 which is really like the basis of one of the Mm. events that you you ended up going to which is crazy and so he ran them every year from 1947 to 2005 yeah he did which is Rather intense. Yeah, it was very intense, and it was intense, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, it heaps in, uh, intense and intense. Yeah, yeah. He, um, yeah. By nineteen forty-seven, he'd run four hundred crusades across one hundred and eighty-five con- countries and territories in six continents, and that—that's like from the beginning when he started. Sorry, not. Sorry, I'll say that again. Not by nineteen forty-seven. Since nineteen forty-seven, yeah. that, that's how many he's done. So four hundred crusades across one hundred and eighty-five countries. Mm. 
and territories. And they reckon that he reached 210 million people in that. Yep. Also being the first Western evangelist to speak behind the Iron Curtain, which is very interesting. Yeah. Because there's also a a question around Billy Graham, and we talked about uh, the fundamentalists being Mm. politically active. Yeah. And uh, Billy was described as America's pastor almost, Mm. but he also was seen as an advisor to many different presidents but mm. i think that's interesting that if we talk about the through line of evangelicals he was happy to advise american presidents and stuff mm. but he wouldn't perhaps identify himself as a very very strongly politically active yeah so my thought on that is um yeah there are political aspects to his ministry mm. but he wouldn't see that as the main line of yeah. his ministry yep. so he's not trying to become politically active to evangelize america he's mm. evangelizing america and he's having a political commentary at mm. the same time he he was advisor to many presidents uh he was also prominent in um uh in arguing for the civil rights movement too so he did have political positions but it wasn't that he thought those political positions would actually change like he he knew they would change the world but his his bread and butter if you like is preaching the gospel gospel. to people Mm. yeah um, and, and you made that point about the civil rights movement. He actually preached jointly with Martin Luther King mm. in 1957 for 16 weeks, which yeah. is to yeah. two, uh, 2.3 million people in New York mm. City at Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium and Times Square, which is mm. fascinating. Um, the other thing that I was, the reason I also made that point about him uh, contrasting his political approach mm. to fundamentalists was that uh, there was a guy called Bob Jones, and in 1966 he was very aligned. He's a, Bob Jones was very aligned with the fundamentalist movement, mm. and he actually said that Billy Graham was doing more harm to the cause of Jesus Christ than any living man, which is rather interesting. And I was just wondering about we talk about this through line of evangelicals and then all the different paths. How how do we perhaps think about that kind of uh, almost uh, uh, it's almost like a bit of a vindictive battle between these different through lines of Protestantism. Mm. How should we view that? Do you think because it's you, you would like to think that everyone we're Christians and we all get along, but it doesn't doesn't really seem like that case with something someone like Bob Jones saying something like that. Yeah, I think I think there's going to be disagreement amongst Christians, and we're all sinful. So we're forgiven sinners. So we, we're still sinners. So we're going to, to not do everything perfectly. Uh, but also the other thing that you find is that Christians get convicted to follow a certain path. You call it a through line, which I think is a really great phrase. I think follow a through line. And others who have chosen a different path will then be critical of that particular decision. So, for example, myself, I was doing political science at university and I had, I had a really big moment in my life later on. Uh, in the early 90s, do I think that I want to dedicate my life to politics or do I want to dedicate my life to evangelism? And I could have done both, but I actually had a conviction to leave my PhD and and my political science aspirations to become a youth minister. And so there might be others that might say, Stuart, that wasn't a good decision. It would have been better for you to stay in, in the university and Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. So people have different um, positions. Also, I think uh, there's there's a lot of really interesting influence that Billy Graham has. He's, he's preaching the gospel, but he's having influence on many people, including some very powerful people. So mm. a good example is his influence on Queen Elizabeth. Mm. There's been an interesting uh, show on Netflix about Queen Elizabeth's history that deals with this a little bit. But uh, it could be argued that when they met in 1955 – at Windsor Chapel, the Queen actually had a real turnaround in her Christian faith 
and some point to that as being one of those moments that has led Queen Elizabeth to associate herself with evangelicalism and to be an evangelical leader. And if you listen to her Christmas messages as she's got older, particularly the last few years, she will explicitly say that she's the Queen of England and Jesus is the King of her. She bows the knee to the King of Heaven. So that's an incredible statement from a head of state to be saying that. So his influence is really strong, but also on popular culture and on lots and lots of Christians. Mm-hmm. So some might say Billy Graham's influence wasn't good on the direction of Christianity and they'll have different opinion on that. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I, I was actually picked up a, a, a book about, uh, this is from Billy Graham's final crusades and it has um, a couple of, uh, quite a few sermons that he actually did in New York City about it. And I found it interesting that the way that he engages with culture, but also says, we need to uh, respond to Jesus at the same time. So I'll just read this little paragraph that he, from one of his sermons. It says, Some time ago, Bono of U2 came to see us at our home, and he sat in front of my wife and composed a song. He was there for about three or four hours, and we had a wonderful time. In one of his songs, he said that we are stranded in some skin and bones. St. Augustine, the great Christian, wrote almost 1,600 years ago, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Those words are true. At the end of the millennium, MTV counted down the top rock songs of all time. Do you know what the number one song was? Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Its opening lines became the anthem of many youth today. I can't get no satisfaction because I try, I try, and I try, and I try. Jesus, however, says that our hearts can be satisfied. And then he goes on to Mm. obviously preach from the gospel. But I just found it interesting how, again, it's that through line. It's holding the tension between the the culture and also trying to be a Christian. I'm just wondering, is that the impact that do you think that Billy really had on people was that we can still be in the culture but we can be in the world but not of the world? I don't think it's an over exaggeration to say that Billy Graham probably encouraged millions of people yeah. to make a personal commitment to Christ and become a Christian. He he diverges a little from some of the hellfire and brimstone preaching of earlier generations. And he preaches about having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus gives you a relationship with God. It's very personal and to make a commitment to have a relationship with God. And so I think he is a fulcrum and a really interesting moment in that evangelical timeline where he is actually helping evangelists to think through a new approach to preaching the gospel. It's the same message, but he's actually talking to a new generation after the Second World War and that new generation would go on to have the baby boomer generation and he continues to speak into that. Um, There's a moment in the late 60s where so many people were becoming Christians amongst the baby boomer generation that it was called the Jesus Movement Mm. and in the early 70s, uh, Jesus Commune set up all over the United States where young evangelists were singing the gospel and they were preaching the gospel um, through their songs and now these days it seems a bit daggy to talk about Christian music and that we kind of again laugh at that. We'll come back to that at a later podcast, but Billy was very supportive of that movement and he saw that there was this, again, this evan- uh, evangelical impulse to encourage evangelists to preach the gospel to the new generation. And I think that um, his ability to be able to influence younger generations and actually have conversations with younger people. I mean, I experienced it myself as an 11-year-old. But then the other interesting bookend to that story is that in 2000, there was an international... Uh, Billy Graham Association uh, gathering in Amsterdam Mm. 
and 10,000 evangelists from around the world were invited to Amsterdam. And you at the to, time, you it, yeah, right? I went to it. Yeah, at the time, it was the biggest international gathering in history because there were people from more countries than a, than the Olympics gathered or the World Cup. So there was over 200 countries represented. And being there, uh, Billy was sick; he couldn't speak, but he came on the screen and just spoke. And it was just such a moving experience to be there with 10,000 people from all over the world, having lunch with someone from Saudi Arabia one minute and then having lunch with a Christian from South America. And, you know, we're all brothers and sisters together. There was this exciting moment that, that, that this isn't about Billy's made this possible, it's Jesus that makes this possible, that he has brought us all together. And so Billy had this way of pointing us to Jesus. And I think that's the the interesting thing with Bono, that he's... He's helping people to see that um, the most important thing, you know, you have we all have needs. And there's lots of needs that we need to help people with in this world, but our biggest need is to meet Jesus. And I think Billy had a real laser focus on that through his preaching all the way through his ministry, right up until 2000 when he was actually so sick we weren't sure he was going to make it. He did live beyond that time. But, um, yeah, it was very powerful. And I actually met some other greats from evangelical uh, history at that conference Josh McDowell I met I met um, John Stott and it was a really exciting moment in right. my life yeah well John Stott is another another one mm. is it, that, yeah. that we might um, have a look at but uh, I really like again you, you pointed to the fact that uh, Billy Graham was a conduit to point everyone towards Jesus yeah. and I think that again is we can take uh, encouragement and confidence from that fact is that as evangelicals mm. if we want to be evangelist that's the way we do it is yeah. to stick to the word to stick to yeah, the word yeah. and also preach the gospel so yeah. john stott he's a he's from england yep and he was a key he was a key player in obviously being a revivalist um around that time what were your thoughts when you met him was he, did he was he encouraging super humble guy very, was he? he was very elderly by the time i met him and i've got it got him on video somewhere that i've, I've showed our youth group at sorrow revival and uh, he he gave a personal encouragement to Soul Revival on the video, oh, which was really right. lovely. Yeah. But I actually just met him on the street outside one of the conference centres and we were just talking while we were waiting for the lights to change. It was a <laughs> really, really cool moment. <laughs> and John was um, very influential in Sydney, Australia, particularly, because okay. when he came to Australia, um, I mean, when, you, when we're talking about revivals, I mean, I, I think, you know, we wouldn't formally say that Billy Graham necessarily brought revival to Australia, but then others say, well, so many people became Christians. Was it a kind of revival? So people can split hairs on the use of the word, but mm. to have such a strong impact on Sydney, um, to see uh, particularly so many churches planted and established, so many Bible set up, Bible studies set up after the Billy Graham Crusades, that was his legacy. John Stott's legacy was really, um, he gave such a, a fabulous explanation of how to read the bible he really taught people how to read the bible and he had a really big impact on sydney preachers in sydney anglican churches because he really encouraged people to have expository preaching front and center of our preaching not just topical preaching and what what is expository preaching well expository preaching is to take a book of the bible and then just to go through it and let god's word actually guide the sermons of the church now that sounds pretty common sense that everyone does it but what john pointed out is if we just pick and choose topics all the time uh, it might actually be more the influence of the preacher what he thinks the congregation needs to hear and when and so unfortunately that approach might leave some things out because some topics might be a bit too controversial or a bit boring. But the good thing about expository preaching is let's read through the whole Bible. And then that actually led to a tradition in Sydney Anglicanism of biblical theology, which is all the books in the Bible is one big story. 
And the cross of Christ is the centerpiece of that story and the climax of that story. And so the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament is unpacking what Jesus has done. So his books, his ministry, his preaching uh, are significant in Sydney where we live, but also right around the world. Yeah, 50 books I, I re, uh, yeah, researched that yeah. he found, oh, sorry, I found that in my research. Yeah. But also um, you spoke about um, John being a super humble guy. Yeah. Apparently at some point he once disguised himself as a homeless person and slept on the streets in order to find out what it was like. Like to be able to serve those people, I think that's a a real conviction um, to actually Mm. preach the gospel. And uh, Time Magazine named him in 2005 as one of the world's 100 most influential people, which speaks to a lot of the things that you're saying. And and John would be another evangelical rather than a fundamentalist Mm. so he didn't spend his time trying to be politically active in england he preached the gospel and then he wrote books and then he traveled around the world helping people to preach the gospel well yeah university mission was a big thing he led some 50 university missions as well Mm. around britain north america australia new zealand and many other places and we spoke about billy graham billy graham said that when john stott passed away he said the evangelical world has lost one of the greatest one of its greatest spokesmen Mm. i have one of my and I have lost one of my close personal friends and advisors. I look forward to seeing him again when I go to heaven, yeah. which is lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's really lovely. He had a lot of really relational aspect. But also what you're seeing in John Stott particularly is this growth of uh, rural propositional evangelism. So right. the propositional truth idea is that if, if there's this big argument in the broader culture between is science our authority or is the Bible our authority, there was this... Um, idea amongst people like John Stott of the reasonableness of the biblical account. This is reasonable. So encouraging people to listen to that proposition and accept it as true or false. Uh, Billy did that too. Other, we'll get on to um, Josh McDowell in, in, in just a minute. But there's others at this time that are really bringing evangelism. The flavor of evangelism at this period of time is we're going to present the Bible. This is true. We're asking you to accept whether it's true or not. And yes, Billy Graham was relational in that but he was still very much, um, the Bible is true and I'm going to talk to you about that. And in that generation uh, that where, where modernism is still really strongly influencing that generation, that is a really important aspect to evangelism. What we're going to find in um, later times is people are going to be less interested in is it propositionally true and more interested in is it, what's it going to do for my life? Is the gospel going to give me anything beneficial to my life and it becomes more relational in that context which we'll talk about in later episodes okay uh so let's go over a quick flow over a couple of the other people then um you wanted to talk about jim rayburn j.i packer and uh um you mentioned josh mcdowell then which one do you want to pick first yeah well let's just fly over those guys so jim rayburn was probably he was a young life leader um which uh, I was talking about. That was a youth movement in the started in the 40s? Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was about the same time as Youth for Christ, and those two movements started up at the same time. Uh, Jim Rayburn would be the father of what's called incarnational theology. Okay, which we've talked about before, yep. Yep, so his his big piece is we need to earn the right to be heard by young people because we need to get into their world, and actually that's another area of investigation we've looked at in previous podcasts, but we'll also pick up again later. if anyone's interested in looking back over the, uh, I think it was in season three when we talked about Andrew Root in, yep. the, in youth ministry, uh, we talked a lot about Jim Rayburn at that podcast, if people want to look back on that. But he was a youth ministry version of 
uh, Billy Graham. Okay. And then you've got uh, Josh McDowell's a really interesting character because he is uh, what's called an apologist. So this idea of pr- propositional truth is he was going to defend the fact that the Bible is true. And so he had a really big influence. And funnily enough, I actually met him as well at the Billy Graham conference in 2000. So that was an awesome. In all um, the big guns. <laughs> I, was, I met him in the in the foyer of, of, <laughs> of the conference. It's like, yeah, it's not like I had a formal coffee with him yeah. or something, but similar kind of thing. I just bumped into him. Yeah. But um, yeah, his, his apologetics was really interesting because he, he wrote this series, uh, a couple of books called Evidence That Demands a Verdict and a really, really influential book that came out in 1977 called More Than a Carpenter. And his idea was uh, either Jesus is a liar he's a lunatic or he's Lord. And so he gave Christians this really cool apologetic, meaning that they could talk to someone who was saying, oh, Jesus didn't exist or Jesus was, you know, the real historical Jesus is not in the Bible. It's a made-up story. Well, what Josh did is he took a a legal framework and he went back and he reread the Bible from the context of, well, if the things that are being said about, you know, if Jesus said these things, he's either an absolute lunatic because he thinks he's God or he's actually a liar and he's lying to people or if it actually is true, he's Lord. Mm-hmm. And so that actually led a lot of people to, to actually come to faith in Christ. So, you know, our readers and listeners might want to look up Josh McDowell, really interesting story. And the last one I just want to talk about briefly is J.I. Packer. He had a huge influence. Uh, he was a Canadian evangelical theologian. Uh, he would have considered himself a low church Anglican, which... We haven't got into yet, but we can go into another okay. episode. <laughs> Some people who go into churchmanship who are really into um, having um, very formal liturgy, maybe even you know not just robes but mitres and hats and all that sort of stuff, have a very um, – that's called high church Anglican. Low church Anglican is kind of us, like <laughs> wearing T-shirts yep. and – you know, whatever. I think I've only seen you wear robes once. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm happy to do that if I need to. But yeah, he's he was a, he was very strong in bringing a strong Calvinist tradition to to help the evangelical movement maintain a Calvinist position. And his best selling book was Knowing God, written in 1973. So very so that is huge. So around the 70s, these guys are really coming to the fore mm. in popular culture. Mm. And um, so he he actually had a really sad ending in his ministry because he actually ended up leaving the Anglican Church in Canada over issues of, that we've been talking about. So as the church in Canada became more and more liberal, at at one point, um, J.O. Packer said, I just can't be part of this church anymore. So that that's something that um, he was really, really interested in. So... Um, yeah, he, his position was biblical inerrancy, and so he was really strong in that the the whole of the Bible is true in all that it affirms. So he was also really strongly supporting the fact that we can trust and believe in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a kind of pretty good summary of some of the, the main characters of this uh, second half of the 20th century evangelical leadership that came out of uh, after the Second World War. Yeah. And they all belong on that through line that we've spoken evangelicals, about yeah. evangelicals yeah so the common common thread joel is that john stott j.o packer billy graham jim rabin josh mcdowell they're all helping people to come to a faith in jesus christ have a personal faith in jesus and while they may have political um thoughts and conversations that's not the main thrust of their ministry whereas the fundamentalists are we need to change the country through political action 
And so that's where some evangelicals who then publicly support Donald Trump, for example, when he ran for office, are saying it's not enough to just meet at church every week and preach the gospel. We need to actually get behind this guy because they believed that that was how America was going to fight off liberalism and modernism. So there was a political activism that a lot of evangelicals didn't do. So what what our popular media have done is conflate fundamentalists with evangelicals. And what we're trying to do in this podcast is make a very clear distinction that there's a lot of evangelicals who don't support Trump. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing to uh, talk about. What we're going to get to in later episodes is as well as fundamentalism coming back, and we'll go back and look at, next episode we'll look at um, uh, Ronald Reagan's era and we'll talk about the politics of that era as well leading up to where we are today because it's important to get that around get our heads around it but also what we're going to see in around 2000 or in the 90s actually there's a new political activism that that shoots off from evangelicalism of progressive christianity which is a more of a left-wing political response to the right-wing fundamentalists mm-hmm. and they're arguing with each other so uh, maybe one day in one of the show notes of one of the podcasts we could even draw a little diagram with this for people to help them but i think it's great if you can have it in your head when you're talking to people because if i share the gospel with someone they might go oh you're you're a fundamentalist who supports donald trump and i'm like well I, i'm not a fundamentalist and i don't support <laughs> yep. donald trump and actually i'm just an evangelical and then people are fascinated by that because they thought, oh, I thought an evangelical mm. was someone who supported Donald Trump. Often called the evangelical right, for example. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd argue the evangelical right is that yes. tributary that's gone off from yeah. evangelicalism and become politically active. Yep. Well, um, I was going to ask for to wrap up the episode, and I think that was a really good way of wrapping it up. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I was just wondering if we've, we've got a question from Leonie that's yep. coming on our Discord yeah, sure. server. So you can, if you uh, do want to ask such questions, you can do it on our Discord mm-hmm. server, which is in the show notes. Um, Leonie um, harks back to when we were talking about um, Christendom, and they had that collector's view where people tended to identify as Christian because of their yes, kingdom yes, or yes. their country or the, the prince, yes. as you mentioned today. Um, and she asked the question, do you see that collectivist approach at approach coming back now with people saying as people say i identify with this tribe or um we choose to belong to this tribe as an example of that um and then does us labeling ourselves as christians put us into a group like that as well i think that's a really good question Mm. because we have been talking about the the research of ian hussey and ian hussey's talking about uh, western countries are very strongly individualistic which these evangelicals have been tapping into people Mm. making individual uh, um, commitment to Christ but the the interesting thing is that the pendulum within Christian circles may have swung too far towards that individualistic aspect because we need to hold intention that we're also called on to have a collective response to the gospel as well as an individual response so that's why I love Ephesians so much because Ephesians says we've been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other so I think there's a healthiness in a group of Christians who've made an individual commitment to Christ who then are committed to Christ and committed to growing his church. And so in the church, there's a there's a collectivist response in that. But being part of a church doesn't make me a Christian. Um, in the era we've been talking about, there was a musician called, um, oh, what was his name? Keith Green. Yeah. And he said, uh, going to McDonald's doesn't make me a hamburger. <laughs> okay. Something like that. It was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> but what he was trying to say is, you know, going to church doesn't make me a Christian. I've got to make a personal commitment to Christ to become a Christian. But then becoming an individual Christian, a Christian individually, doesn't make 
abdicate my responsibility to the rest of the body because I'm part of the body of Christ. And what I think is fascinating about this series is a good evangelistic response to the world, being a good evangelical, is to, I think, recapture some of that togetherness that we've lost a little bit in the second half of the 20th century as well, which yeah. I think we should get onto as well. That's fascinating. And and also within that answer, I hear you again um, going back to those guys on the through line. of mm. like this where we... We use the Bible, and it's, it is the authoritative word of God, mm. and then we preach the gospel after that, yeah, and everything yeah. else is comes second to that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think, think that's so. the encouragement taken from this episode. So it's thank you, so. thank Thanks you very so. much. Good on you. <laughs> it's been very educational, and <laughs> um, good job, guys. You can continue to engage with us on Discord, or um, which is in the show notes, or on uh, you can send me a, an email if you like at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Uh, we you can subscribe to our mailing list if you like, which is at shockabsorber.com.au. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already or on YouTube. We're on there all the time. And uh, I'm going to say thank you very much too. I'll say thank you too. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for everyone listening. One, One way. way.